YouTube, it's your boy Scott Morris here. Welcome to Fuzz on Film Podcast. We've got to talk about all the films, all the great films. It's got to be good. Sorry, that's the wrong audience there. This is just the Fuzz on Film Podcast, and we're actually sensible. But I am Scott Morris, and I have with me today, of course, Craig Eastman. Give me the cash! <laughs> Again, answers on a Twitter postcard. Um, <laughs> Hello, everybody. As has become habit, we don't quite have Drew Tavendale here, uh, in body at least, but we do have some audio clips that we'll be putting in to actually wet your enthusiasm for uh, his return. Some audio clips and some textual healing. Yes, he's still on his goodwill tour of Europe, but uh, we hope he will return soon. But until then, uh, we'll make do with what we can get. Our European peace envoy. A bunch of films to talk to you about today. Well, let's just start with, I think, Lights Out. Let's do that. As we go through life, of course, we can't help but learn things from experience, and this is largely why there's almost no reviews of contemporary horror films on this podcast, <laughs> as in our, our formative years, uh, yeah, we, we've sat through pretty nearly all of them that hit a multiplex between, what, 2000 and 2007 or something like something that? Something like that. Yeah, it, was, it was enough to be getting on with. Yeah, it's a lot like Nam Scott. I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> so it left us very much scarred, not really due to any nerve jangling terror, but more just boredom, really. Mm. A million cliches recycling themselves slowly. But every now and again, one catches my attention, normally after a parade of people who ought to know better declare this one's not that bad, honest, Gov. Mm. And even more rarely, I might actually enjoy one of them, their films. And Lights Out, as it happens, is one of those, although perhaps not what? strictly one I enjoy as a horror film. The prologue provides an effective demonstration of the mechanics of the film. A bloke's working late in what appears to be a mannequin storage facility, which could already only be much creepier if it featured clowns or Victorian-era dolls. <laughs> His co-worker makes to leave, but catches sight of a subtly inhuman silhouette in the darkness that disappears in the light. Suitably spooked, she warns her co-worker, Paul, played by Billy Burke, about this. He understandably dismisses this, which turns out to be his undoing as he's later stalked and killed by this light-averse monster. Mourning this grisly passing are Sophie, Marie Bello, and their son Martin, Gabriel Bateman. Indeed, it's sent Sophie back into a spiral of depression that she'd previously been treated for. Child services get involved when Martin keeps falling asleep at school. Martin asks them to contact his sister, Rebecca, played by Theresa Palmer, who's living uh, alone in a cross-town apartment after a rift formed between her mother and herself. Martin confesses that he's too scared to sleep at nights, with Sophie apparently talking to an imaginary friend all night and keeping the house in the dark all the time, freaking Martin well the out. Uh, Rebecca, along with her boyfriend Brett, played by Alexander de Persia, take Martin back to his home to confront his mother, and after seeing the state she's in, decide to allow Martin to stay with Rebecca in hopes of him getting some sleep. Rebecca's convinced Sophie's just falling apart after her stepfather's death in the same manner as she did when her father disappeared from them some years ago. However, doubt starts creeping in that night when she sees that their subtly inhuman silhouette scratching something on the floor. The light dispels this, but scratches remain, with the name Diana, permanently ruining her chances of getting her rental deposit back. This reactivates what seems to be her suppressed childhood memories of her run-ins with this nocturnal memace. Child services also show up to return Martin to his mother, as while sympathetic and understanding, Rebecca's history of suicide attempts doesn't make their prime guardian material. Convincing and understanding Brett that they need to investigate this Diana character further, they go digging through her mother's past, a particular time in a mental health facility, which, as it turns out, was what Paul was investigating at the time of his cessation. The details I'll skip over, partly to leave that discovery to the interested and partly because it's not like it makes a lick of sense anyway, but Diana appears to be the vengeful ghost of her mother's friend that's obsessed with protecting Sophie, largely meaning protecting their bond from anyone else threatening to take Sophie's attention away from Diana. 
Rebecca and Brett decide to confront Sophie about this, who initially denies it before managing to slip a note asking for help, and the rest of the film deals with their attempts to bring about an end to this in ways that, again, best left unmentioned to avoid spoiling it for the interested, which is actually a little frustrating, as the film has so many great little moments and scenes enabled by the rules it so effectively sets up in its opening salvo. You're safe in the light, but you're not in the dark, and if you can get the lights on somehow, even if you're currently being hoisted aloft by the supernatural irritant, she's going to disappear without even a puff of smoke, causing you to succumb to gravity. It helps that these lovely little vignettes are strung together by a cast that actually have some talent, which is not something you can rely on in this genre. It's great to see Maria Bello again, certainly in something that's not the fifth wave, and her portrayal of character turmoil is more nuanced and convincing than you'd normally hope for in this kind of horror film. Teresa Palmer, who impressed me in the zombie comedy Warm Bodies a few years back, is a capable and dynamic, convincing lead, and Diane's human embodiment, Alicia Vela Bailey, uses her dance and acrobatic background to bring some eerie movements that recall the characters uh, from Alien in places. Now, if your definition of a good horror film necessarily includes it being scary, this strikes out a little as far as I'm concerned. For the most part, it's mostly subverting genre tropes, mainly with characters that mostly make sensible decisions, rather than doing the stupidest possible thing at all times, Uh, but it is still bound by genre formats and cinematic convention enough to make it a little bit predictable as to where the next bit of creepiness is going to be unfolded. Although it does earn massive brownie points for me by not relying on loud orchestral stabs to provide jump scares. What? It must be said, your mileage may vary in this point. As mentioned, this is very far from my first time at this rodeo, and there's only so many ways to skin the cat. Predictability aside, it at no point stopped being enjoyable with many innovative little touches, and so is the most entertaining horror film I've seen in years. So, how's that for a debut directorial performance? And with it currently hovering around $140 million box office from a budget of five, it certainly puts UK savings interest rates into perspective. Crucially, it deserves every cent of it, and I look forward to seeing what the David F. Sandberg does next. I am beside myself. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Am I actually going to have to check out Lights Out? You may well have to. Holy it's a, moly. It's certainly much better than the one that was, what was the previous one that was knocking around everyone quite liked it. It Follows was got quite a reputation and I did not enjoy that one wit. I, see, I liked Lights It Follows liked. kind of to an extent. Again, more than I've enjoyed most, if not all, horror movies. I, I, mm. I didn't enjoy it quite as much as um, The Babadook. Mm. But yeah, I still en- I still enjoyed it for what it was. It felt kind of novel. But um, if I will I will take it under advisement, Scott. If you're telling me that Lights Out is the best horror film you've seen in a few years, then I think we generally feel pretty safe saying Drew does as well. We generally fall in alignment on these things. The director did have a short, which uh, yes. a couple of minutes that this is kind of based on at least the, the central ideas of it. So it's worth having a look at that and seeing if it's the kind of thing that looks like you might be interested in. Hmm. Scott, remember that time Elvis met Nixon? Uh, was that Elvis versus Nixon, the Titanic mm. death match? I, I don't think so. I don't remember either. Why don't you tell us about Elvis and Nixon? Well, I can't really, but I know a man who can. So. Oh, Control V. On the 21st of December 1970, United States President Richard Milhouse Nixon met with royalty. A king. The king, in fact. Elvis Aaron Presley. Two months later, on the 16th of February 1971, Nixon began recording all meetings and telephone calls that took place in the Oval Office. So just what occurred in this famous but unrecorded get-together, the official photograph of which is the single most requested document in the US National Archives, that precipitated Nixon's legendarily paranoid record-keeping that eventually brought about his downfall? That is the question that Eliza Johnson's comedy drama seeks to answer. 
In the midst of his comeback era, with social discord and anti-Vietnam war sentiment growing, Elvis Presley is dismayed at the direction he sees the youth of the USA taking, and decides that his country needs him. He calls his longtime friend Jerry Schilling, and the two travel to Washington DC, whereupon Elvis rocks up to the gatepost of the White House, gives a handwritten letter to the bemused guard, and requests to see the president. As you do. Now, for most regular folks, this tactic may not end well. But this is Elvis. Word that the most popular and recognisable figure in the entertainment industry is waiting outside, reaches administration official Eagle Croak and White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman. And after confirming that no, this isn't a piss take, and yes, that really is Elvis, yes, THE Elvis out there, plans are put into motion to wangle a meeting with the King into the President's schedule. Elvis returns to his hotel, and later into urban DC, for some soul-searching, while Nixon's advisers try to convince him that meeting as influential an entertainer as Presley is a much more valuable use of his day than what is currently in his schedule. Presidential nap time, should you be wondering. Duly convinced, Tricky Dick and the King meet, and Elvis submits his formal request that the President make him an undercover federal agent at large in the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Though the meeting wasn't recorded on tape, portions were witnessed and later recounted by Krogh and another aide. And while much of Johnson's film is conjecture, the central issue of Elvis's meeting and request for a law enforcement credential are astonishingly true, as is the fact that he did, indeed, receive the bureau badge that he requested. For most of the rest, though, including the nature and details of the confab, the film, from a script by Joey and Hanala Segal and Carrie Elwes, makes it all up, and does so gleefully. Richard Nixon has always been a figure fit for caricature, impression and imitation, and has rarely ever played as anything but. Frank Langella's earnest and excellent impersonation in Frost Nixon is very much a rare deviation, and Kevin Spacey here is no exception, with his take on Nixon bordering on the cartoonish, but it fits well with the tone of the piece, and he is entertaining throughout, even if this is Spacey on cruise control. There is dependable, if unremarkable, support from Tate Donovan as Haldeman, Colin Hanks as Croak, though Hanks becomes more endearing as his facade of professionalism falters, that he becomes as starstruck by Elvis as everyone else, and Johnny Knoxville as a member of Elvis's retinue. But the plaudits here go to Alex Pettifer as Jerry Schilling, a relatable voice of calm, reason and true friendship to Elvis throughout, and especially to Michael Shannon as the King himself. While Shannon doesn't possess the physical or vocal weight and presence of Presley, his talent shines through and here he resists portraying Elvis as a caricature. Like Nixon, there are few figures more readily open to such an approach as the man from Memphis. Rather, his Presley is a sensitive, sympathetic and troubled man, albeit wildly deluded, who it is easy to believe earnestly feels that his country is in a bad way and that he truly can help. There is also an undercurrent of sadness and loneliness in Shannon's portrayal that, while present in the script, would certainly be submerged by the inherent absurdity of the premise in lesser hands. There is also more than a hint of mischief, though, in both the script and Michael Shannon's acting, that might make you think that Elvis doesn't really believe what he's saying. Maybe. This makes the final act, with the preparation for, and realisation of the meeting, by far the most satisfying and entertaining portion of the film, and well worth patiently waiting through the relatively sedate first two acts for. 
Some of the reported dialogue of the meeting has been omitted in favour of goofiness and physicality, which is a little to the film's detriment, as it is as absurd, or more so, as what has been left in. But Elvis and Nixon is a light, entertaining tale of the coming together of two of the most famous people of their era, and it's another opportunity to enjoy just how fine an actor Michael Shannon is. Thanks for that, Drew. Can't really comment any further. <laughs> not seen it. <laughs> I can't comment because I've not seen it and I haven't yet listened to what Drew had to say about it. <laughs> so I guess we shall crash on to the Jungle Book. Craig, if you are. Aye. Do you want me to say a little something about the Jungle Book, do you? I do, I do. I'm going to go ahead and assume, Scott, that most of our audience um, are at least passingly familiar with Disney's 1967 adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book, which tells the story of a young man cub, see human called Mowgli, who is raised by wolves after his father or his parents are killed by the um, vicious, uh, legendary tiger Shere Khan. This, uh, the film we're going to talk about tonight is John Favreau's adaptation from this year, which stars a young uh, Neil Sethi as Mowgli, uh, in a, the only live-action role in the film, the rest of the film being entirely CG, with the characters you are familiar with from that earlier Disney effort being voiced, in this case, by Bill Murray as Baloo, Ben Kingsley as Bagheera, Idris Elba as Shere Khan, uh, Lupita Nyong'o as Raksha, uh, and Scarlett Johansson as Ka, amongst others. Uh, and not to forget uh, one of the one of the most inspired <laughs> pieces of casting uh, I think I've come across in my entire life to date, which would be Christopher Walken as <laughs> as King Louis. Kid, I got ears. My ears got ears. <laughs> so anyway, ostensibly the same tale, although in a great number of aspects uh, sticking more closely to the source novel than Disney's earlier effort did. The story here is, is uh, very much a retread of, of what you'll have seen before, albeit with all of the trappings of modern CG characters and environments. Now, Jungle Book has received a great amount of audience and critical acclaim, I think it's fair to say, since mm. it was released earlier this year. And now that it's available on demand, um, I was kind of morally obligated to check it out, much as I didn't want to, because the original Jungle Book is the first film that I ever saw in a cinema. Not in 1967, I hasten to add. When I was a tender three years old, my mum took me to see uh, a reissue of it at the local cinema. Um, and so it was my first experience in the cinema, and to this day it remains one of my favourite if not my favourite animated films and I'm now fortunate enough that I am able to share my affection for it with my three-year-old daughter who thinks the sun shines out of Baloo's backside and who, even as I record this, is curled up in bed snuggled up against a huge Baloo plushie uh, that I got her some time ago and which is her favourite bedtime toy. So it's safe to say that The Jungle Book is um, an intensely uh, personal pleasure uh, for me in a number of aspects. So I wasn't particularly looking forward to checking out this uh, this modern revamp of it not because I'm not open-minded to these things because I think there's a lot to be said for some of the remakes that I've seen recently even the ones that have um, failed admirably but um, it seemed to me that The Jungle Book is one of those films an example of which where it's kind of a perfect piece of cinema for me and elicits a great deal of emotion for me even to this day uh, even after watching it somewhere in the ballpark of uh, it's Fair to say I've seen this film in the ballpark of probably between 60 and 80 times now. Um, what was being consigned to the couch to, to watch it with my little girl every other day. So 
Yeah, I was. Um, I'm more of the opinion that just when a film is kind of this good to begin with, I'm not sure that the source material had enough different to say to warrant a remake. And I kind of feel like my feelings on this are largely borne out. I'm not going to do my usual thing of uh, of accusing people of taking crazy pills because there is a lot to enjoy about this remake of the Jungle Book, and technically it is quite accomplished, even if visually we are still very much in uh, the Canny Valley for all the money that's been thrown at this. And I think if I'm just having a brief, I'm having a brief look through Drew's notes here as I go through this because I think we might have an audio clip from Drew to insert as well. Um, and it looks like he broadly shares my opinion on this, which I'm I'm kind of heartened to see. So it's it's not just me who finds it a little bit um, a little bit detached, and um, I'm slightly perplexed by all of the praise that's been thrown on it. I mean, visually, it is quite a resplendent film. Um, I would say that the environments perhaps are more impressive than the characters the CG characters. The voice talent is perhaps the best thing about the movie. I was kind of concerned when I found out that Bill Murray was going to be voicing Baloo because uh, our previous experience of Bill Murray having voiced uh, a CG character would be in the Garfield movies. And we all know how those ended up. Um, And it ended up with Bill Murray reaching into his post box and pulling out a big fat check for having made really particularly little effort, I think it would probably be fair (laughs) to say. I was very worried that it was going to be the same. I'm... I was entirely heartened to find out that actually Bill Murray's Baloo is not only a much more invested performance on his part, um, but also sufficiently different from the portrayal of Baloo that you might be familiar with from the 1967 version of the the movie to me actually to set it apart in a, a positive way from that. I wouldn't be quite as generous towards Ben Kingsley and Idris Elba, both of whom do feel a little bit more like they're either phoning the performance in in Kings of Case or perhaps just not as great a voice actor as they are a, a stage actor in the case of Idris Elba but the voice talent on the whole um, including uh, surprisingly Scarlett Johansson as the voice of Ka this time round, Ka the Snake are all entirely serviceable in the roles uh, at least serviceable if not operating kind of above that and into the well into the territory of good um, so that was a pleasant surprise for me as I alluded to before Christopher Walken as King Louis is perhaps the revelation of this film although I do feel it was slightly remiss of the uh, the production team to take the step of actually having Chris uh, Walken uh, unleash I think is the word to use his own rendition of King of the Swingers I Want to Be Like You which came as a surprise I was under the impression that this movie was going to forgo any of the musical efforts of the previous film Um, but actually Chris Walken does Chris Walken does deliver there is also a half-hearted rendition of Bare Necessities as well so for a film that wants to make a point of being something different from the 67, the original Disney adaptation, and stick more closely to the book. It was a surprise to me that, um, and a misstep in my opinion, that they opted to tackle what are two not just accomplished kind of musical numbers and well-recognised musical numbers, but really iconic musical numbers, both from the same movie. Really, King of the Swingers and um, Bare Necessities are two of the best musical numbers written for and committed to film that I can think of and I I make that statement completely separate from um, from the pantheon of animated movies I just mean in cinematic history in general so it was a move that could be considered bold I would say foolish to then tackle them and in the case of Chris Walken's performance they've augmented it with updated lyrics which kind of compounded my frustration at it if you can see past that 
it's not such a big deal. But for me, that was like a huge critical misstep. But by and large, this film is a as a piece of self assembly cinematic furniture is competently assembled by John Favreau. The credit, most of the credit, has to go to the technical team for the CG and in particular the environments, the characters. And I see here as well, Drew has alluded to this, and again, I'm glad the animal characters. Um, a great deal of fuss about which um, has been made uh, were actually quite disappointingly cartoonish for my liking. Um, Drew's comment here, I think, is that. Oh god, I've scrolled past it, Scott. What was Drew's comment regarding the characters? He does not think they look particularly realistic, and he worries for some other reviewer's eyesight. Yes, worries for reviewer's (laughs) eyesight. You're you're bang on, Drew. You're absolutely bang on. It's very much the same, um, although obviously the attempt isn't quite to be as photorealistic because this bear is trying to talk. But um, I was reminded of The Revenant, where obviously a great deal of fuss was made about the bear attack scene, uh, which Mm. when I sat down to watch it recently, I thought, right, hang on a minute. Sorry, what were you saying about photorealistic bears again? Um, so yes, uh, that aside from the fact that these are these are talking, these are talking um, animated bears. They're still they're still not quite the technical achievement. But as I say, the environments are a different matter. Actually, a lot of the environments are quite quite stunning, actually, and incredibly accomplished. Um, and probably the most yeah technically wowing aspect of the film. The other big problem the film has for me is Neil Sethi as uh, Mowgli. And I think Drew is slightly more kind in the notes that I've read here than I would be about it, although I have a lot of the same grievances in terms of the young lad's performance. I have nothing against the kids personally, and again, I have all the sympathy in the world for someone who at such a young age um, takes on, again, such an iconic character um, and trying to portray in live action um, such a well-known and fondly regarded character from uh, uh, an iconic animated movie. But Neil City just doesn't cut the mustard for me. There is a pleasant lack of precociousness, which I think Drew, um, again, alludes to. For the most part, at least, um, I felt like it was kind of creeping in around the edges, and so I would... I think I took a little bit more umbrage at that than perhaps Drew has. But again... It's not the best performance ever. It's not the most naturalistic. Uh, You kind of have to feel sorry for the lad because he's clearly spent his whole time on his own in a cavernous room with Jon Favreau reacting to environments and characters who (laughs) aren't there. So it it can't be an easy job. But his performance, every reaction and every important action of Neil Stathy's performance are slightly, slightly too exaggerated in a way that while it's not comic is far enough removed from naturalistic that I find it quite jarring and it doesn't it doesn't blend well with the CG the interaction just is a little bit too false. He also does this very I mean the 67 film if I remember correctly Mowgli was actually rotoscoped from animated as a rotoscope from a child actor who carried out um, who whom they filmed carrying out a lot of the action and who had adopted this very characteristic um, uh, ape-like swagger monkey-like swagger where they walked very sort of loose-armed and very sort of um, very flowing kind of sauntering motion and I'm assuming at the behest of John Favreau, young Neil Sethi makes an attempt to um, enact the same here and it just doesn't work again, it's just a little bit too exaggerated and I almost wish and I feel pretty confident in saying that actually if if Neil Sethi had been a motion capture actor and Mowgli had been a CG character as well, 
I think that might have translated a little bit better than the live actor amongst CG environment and animal sort of antics which are going on here. So I understand that um, it's made an absolute dump truck full of money at the box office and it was being critically well received but I'm a little bit perplexed by that. Um, as I say earlier, full disclosure, obviously my massive, massive fondness and very personal reasons for enjoying the first movie um, have to be taken into account and I can't say with 100% certainty that I am allowing myself to set those completely to one side when I'm making this judgement but I think I'm able to do that and I think I have and I've still come up feeling that uh, this adaptation of Jungle Book falls a little bit short of what I would have liked but it's still a competent family movie albeit Surprisingly, not for very younger children. Um, if you're looking for a guide as to what age children to take uh, to the film, I can't say for definite, but I wouldn't let my three-year-old watch it because there are some scenes in it which are a little bit more intense than anything in the animated movie from a sort of tiger attack point of view. So, yes, uh, with caution, maybe maybe five and up as a, as a guide, but there you go. So, I don't know. Shall we insert a clip of what Drew had to say, Scott? I think we've more or less touched on everything that Drew uh, says in his uh, notes there. All I'll add is that, you know, personally, the original, like all of Disney's animations, hold no purchase in my heart whatsoever. Um, to the point I'm not <laughs> exactly 100% sure I've really watched it all the way through. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the songs, obviously. I'm not a monster, but the story of it? No, I couldn't, couldn't tell you. But largely I would be repeating everything you say. The CG is... it's. I think actually the CG is pretty good it's just that problem where it started to as you say venture down into uncanny valley when they start talking like humans yeah my brain kind of goes nope not having that and mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of makes it seem a little bit silly again and the kid playing mowgli is occasionally annoying not all that often i don't think but often enough mm-hmm. more or less the same conclusion as drew does here it's not exactly fair to compare it with the 1967 animation as there are such different beasts but this retains some of the charm and fun of the classic, but has a little more menace and a fuller storyline and is definitely worth watching. I echo that. It's mm. perfectly fine. It's stronger than most of the summer's tent poles, but again, yeah. it's been a pretty shugly year for them. The, the question, I suppose, remains as to whether you'd be better off watching this or the original, and mm. I suspect the answer is, as in a great bulk of these cases, the original. Mm. Um, but certainly, if you if you do watch this, I don't think you'll have too bad a time of it. Yes, yes. I don't want to be too down on it because it is definitely worth a watch, but um, I'm just slightly baffled by how warm of a reception it's had. But there you go. Uh, As always, Scott, we posit our views with the caveat that mileage will vary. Yes, please. Tell us what you think if you disagree with us. Mm. And we'll tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) About subjective opinions. Right, uh, moving on to Anthropoid, the recent release. There is no excuse, really, in an age where reasonably reliable information is freely available at your fingertips for my lack of knowledge about what happened in the then Czechoslovakia after it was largely handed over to Hitler's Germany just before World War II in the Munich Agreement, or Munich Betrayal, as I believe it's more commonly known over there for understandable reasons. (laughs) Yes, one Uh, wonders why. uh, Our history lessons at school were rather more focused on the broad strokes and the British fronts, which has a certain logic, but does leave a great deal of further reading for the interested, and while I am interested in it, it's also hugely depressing. And Mm. there's these videos of cute kittens and puppies on the internet. Have you seen them? They are adorable. 
Anthropoid, however, aims to fill in a little of this gap, uh, based around the plot to assassinate the hated Butcher of Prague, Reinhard Heydrich, played here by Detlef Brohe. Bothy? Both? Both? Bothy, I would think. Go for De- Bothy. Bothy. This charmer was one of the highest ranking Nazi officers and is largely held responsible for Kristallnacht and later the so-called Final Solution. Mm. So, even as someone uncomfortable <laughs> with the general idea of extrajudicial killing, it could rarely happen to a more deserving target. An, an all-round great guy. <laughs> He's not on many Christmas card lists. Jan Kubis, played by Jamie Dornan, and Josef Gabczyk, uh, played by Killian Murphy, are two exiled Czechs working for the government in exile and trained by the Special Operations Executive. They are parachuted back into Czechoslovakia with orders to Hill Hedrick, who has been using a brutal execution-heavy fist to crush any resistance to the annexation. Indeed, once Jan Josef managed to make contact with the resistance's leader, Uncle Hadsky, played by Toby Jones, there's only a handful of them left. After a brief period of worrying about the possible repercussions, rightly as it turned out, Jan and Joseph set about coming up with a plan. You'd think there might have been some attempt at this beforehand, but I guess there's no substitute for boots on the ground. It turns out Heydrich has a rather blasé attitude to his safety while transferring between his home and his office, travelling in an open-top jeep, occasionally without armoured escorts. Jan and Joseph hit upon the Route 1 solution of ambushing him at a hairpin bend with a Sten gun and some modified anti-tank grenades. <laughs> I guess they can't all be Operation Fortitude. Uh, <laughs> as part of their cover, they're introduced to Marie Kovarnikova, uh, played by Charlotte Le Bon, and Linka Favkova, played by Anna Gesarova, uh, walking around as young lovers, uh, being seen as rather less suspicious than just having two blokes running around casing the joint. For both men, these cover relationships become actual ones, even despite the very real risk that there's no escape plan for either men after pulling the trigger on the assassination. And what follows is a matter of historical record, coming close to failure uh, when the machine gun jams, although the wound sustained from the grenade does Hedrick in a week later. The two manage to escape the immediate aftermath, but amidst a massive manhunt, there's no way for them to leave Prague. The remaining resistance fighters hold up in a cathedral, only to be betrayed by one of their own for a million Reichsmarks, leading to a tremendous firefight against the odds that the Czechs ultimately cannot overcome. Anthropoid winds up being one of those unrelentingly solid films that, while there's not a damn thing wrong with, it's somehow quite difficult to get all that worked up over. Murphy and Dornan provide solid central turns, and they're both portraying brave, admirable men, but men that understandably aren't the sort of flamboyant or overly dramatic character that you might write if you weren't shackled by reflecting reality. Likewise, the supporting roles are well handled, Toby Jones in particular being his reliably excellent self, Charlotte Rabone and Anna Gerslova both play likeable, strong characters doing a great job of showing it's not just the men making sacrifices in wartime, and director Sean Ellis squeezes in some decent tension from certain scenes, and his handling of the shootout at the cathedral at the end is very good indeed. Perhaps it's too grounded and resolutely unspectacular for some in this age of comic book sugar rushes, but frankly, occasional accent slips aside, Anthropoid does not do very much long in the two hours that you will spend with it, and on that basis, I can't not recommend it to everyone. So, go and see it, everyone. Fair dues. Yes. I'm going to have to think of a, an inspired link <laughs> between that and Sing Street. It's, it's not the easiest mix. I don't. I don't suppose. I don't. I suppose at any time the two protagonists of Anthropoid thought about starting a band. Did they? Scott? That was briefly not considered as one of their options for a cover story. Yes. Yes. Oh, excellent! And Killian Murphy's from yeah, Ireland, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, a lot of that work. Oh my God! These links are golden. So I must apologise. The quality of my voice is varying massively tonight. 
I ran out of cough medicine earlier today, and uh, well, it's usually interchangeable with um, Southern Comfort and Coke, isn't it? But uh, I'm out of Southern Comfort now as well. Are you drunk, son? No, I'm just highly medicated. Yes. Writer-director John Carney made himself a critical and commercial darling with his breakout 2007 hit Once. The tale of a busker and a Polish immigrant whose burgeoning relationship is mirrored in the music they write and rehearse together across one week in Dublin. That movie eventually spawned a hit West End musical, so no pressure (laughs) or anything. Subsequent projects have seen Carney flirt with a return to relative obscurity, his closest to mainstream success being 2013's Mark Ruffalo, Keira Knightley starring Begin Again. While that movie leaned somewhat heavily on the key themes of Once, it didn't resonate quite so well with audiences or critics, but I'm happy to report that Carney's latest effort, Sing Street, is most definitely a return to form. Connor Laller, Ferdia Walsh Pilo, is a teenage boy living in 80s Dublin whose parents have hit hard financial times, necessitating that he be enrolled at a free Catholic boys' school as opposed to the private education he has received thus far. Immediately earmarked as an upmarket outcast, Connor falls predictably foul of school bully Barry, played by Ian Kelly, and perhaps more worryingly school principal Brother Baxter, played by Don Wickerley, whose strictly enforced black shoes only policy proves problematic for a boy who only owns brown Connor does make a friend in Darren, played by Ben Carolan, another outcast who shows him the ropes of Sing Street School for Boys. That's Sing spelt S-Y-N-G-E, in case you were wondering. Having had his eye painted black by Barry, Connor leaves school on his first day to see an attractive young woman, Rafina, played by Lucy Boynton, loitering across the street outside a home for young women. Immediately smitten, Connor strikes up an awkward conversation, learning that Rafina is apparently a model, or at least claims to be. Leaning heavily into his older brother's musical disposition and the resultant ad hoc education in musical arts, Connor naturally asserts that Rafina ought to be in his band's new music video, boldly sidestepping the issues raised by said band not actually being a thing that exists. With haste, Connor informs Darren that they need to start a group. The ensuing ensemble, named for their school, is rounded out firstly by musical prodigy Eamon, and then three more local kids united less by musical ability than their unpopular geek status. Their first song, Riddle of the Model, is a surprisingly accomplished affair, the video less so, and establishes the band's new romantic aesthetic, complete with accompanying garb and makeup, features that do not sit well with the Catholic school ecosystem of the early <laughs> 80s. Connor soon finds himself spinning the three very fragile plates of home, school and love lives as he tries to insinuate himself into the affection of the older Rafina, cope with the emotional aftermath of his mother's infidelity and all the while avoid having Barry stave his head in for any number of arbitrary crimes against popularity. Sing Street falls comfortably into the now crowded pantheon of low-key teen male coming-of-age movies alongside the likes of Submarine, but it manages to set itself apart for a number of reasons. Firstly, this is a movie of undeniable charm, most of which emanates from its naturally charismatic young leads. It's debatable whether Carney's reluctance to delve more deeply into, say, the brutality of the Irish Catholic school system is a plus or a minus. On the latter hand, it might have served as great emotional leverage. However, I was quite pleasantly surprised by the movie's staunch refusal to allow itself to be anything less than upbeat for the majority of its running time. And while the band's near-miraculous musical competence may prove slightly too fantastical to swallow on the whole, it does serve the plot incredibly well, and the musical numbers are authentic, well-written, and enjoyable slices of retro-pop in their own right. Similarly, the relationship betwixt Connor and Rafina may at times feel a little stretched, however it remains charming, delivers no small amount of pathos, and yet also avoids the pitfall of feeling exploitative from either. 
either end. Despite being ostensibly a musical, the primary weapons in Sing Street's arsenal are affection and humour, and that is always going to be a winning combination for a broad audience when handled correctly. However, Carney's skill in weaving something satisfying that relies less on easy leverage is evident, even if the stage curtains come perilously close to falling down on a number of occasions. I suspect the appeal of the movie on a personal basis will depend on one's tolerance for the fanciful, what with my prior observations and also the movie's undeniably daft <laughs> final act that is designed to tie back to the well-known music video that inspires Connor back in the first reel. I, for one, applaud the fanciful and find Sing Street a heartfelt pleasure, and I hope you will do too. Now, did you get a chance to watch Sing Street, Scott? I did, um, and uh, ah. I'm largely echoing everything you say. It's, it's just relentlessly charming. Uh, I yes. heartily enjoyed it, as you say. Not the most realistic. There's many bands that go their entire careers without hitting upon something as catchy as Riddle of the Model, <laughs> which is the kid's <laughs> first night, first crack yeah. at it. <laughs> In a band where only, what, two of the kids actually have any skill at playing instruments? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any sort of prior, prior musical, yeah. uh, yes... Providence. Yeah, um, it, it does deviate. Thankfully, I mean the other thing you compare it to Submarine. The other thing it could quite easily mm. be compared to would be the likes of Glee or High School Musical. These sort of American yeah. outings. And um, this has, in comparison, a complete absence of saccharin or the kind of modelling mm. overdramatization of events and relationships. Sometimes to the point of dissonance. Things like horrific information about child abuse just gets slipped into normal conversation like it's nothing at all. Uh, yeah. But I suppose that's more in line with how these Earth humans talk to each other, I guess. In general, just really sharply scripted, um, frequently very funny indeed. Walsh, Pilo and Plunkett show really good chemistry, and Jack Raynor's scene-stealingly good. And mm-hmm. it's good to see that after his stint as Littlefinger, it now means that every accent Aidan Gillen tries, even when it's his own, sounds wildly inauthentic. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, yeah. I, I would heartily recommend this to anyone. Uh, very good stuff. And if you're uh, a fan of the kind of more, I guess, more generally low-key uh, coming-of-age kind of stuff, then this mm-hmm. is very worth listening to indeed. The music stuff is worth listening to that alone. Uh, some really good musical numbers in there. Yes, heartily enjoyed it. Yeah, I was trying to describe it in um, typical terms to my wife the other week there after I'd watched it, and uh, the best I could come up with is that it's a love triangle between Submarine, Stand By Me, and The Commitments. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's Gregory's Girl, if Gregory's Girl wasn't so much interested in football as it was new romanticism, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the much more mainstream pursuit <laughs> amongst the 80s British school <laughs> culture being new romanticism. It's not cloyingly, unrelentingly upbeat. It just it just is happy to be upbeat, yeah. but not in a saccharine way, as as you pointed out. And it's, I mean, all, all the more power to it. Uh, but movies like this are so often injected with uh, you know disheartening moments or moments of great adversity for the uh, you know the younger protagonist and in this case I suppose it could quite easily have been um, the uh, you know the impending divorce of his parents and whatnot but I was kind of pleasantly surprised that the the movie paid relatively short thrift to that and got on with the business of the um, developing the relationship between Connor and, and Rafina. It is just a really pleasant and, to some extent, you know, uplifting movie. And the, the really, there's a really wonderful, uh, not to spoil anything, but there's a really, in particular, a really wonderful scene towards the very end, just as the very unlikely ending is uh, is kicking off, where um, Connor's older brother um, has uh, has a particular reaction to what's happening. That was really just, um, it was really quite, it was really quite touching, and I. The one complaint that I had with the film was that perhaps Connor's family weren't 
weren't as um, fleshed out as I might have liked them to have been. But in the instance of his brother, certainly just that very last scene at the very end, they're sort of, you know, in the, sp- the space of two words, I think, perhaps. <laughs> and his brother's his brother's reaction and, and, and two words that he shouts, I think, um, tell you pretty much everything you need to know about his brother's backstory. Just a really, just a really pleasant coming of age film, but not in a sort of a patronising or overly sugary way. Hi, yeah, just it's the the probably the film I've enjoyed most in the last uh, couple of months that I've seen. I think. Yeah, I almost wish there's a, a, an alternate take of this where you could actually see ones where mm. it, it's focusing on the other people in the band and the stories that are going on because his, mm. his brother does have some really great scenes in it and it's it's really good, but mm. there's points like towards the end where it's commenting on the fact that he's outside and you've never seen him outside before and apparently that was something about he was about a shut-in before and he wasn't leaving his room, but that was not yeah. made at any point clear until he's actually outside. It's like, oh. Yeah. And there's a few other moments like that where there's something quite intriguing that's sort of th- as a throwaway line that you could mm-hmm. probably build a whole film around with itself. And uh, certainly the the non-Aemon slash or, or, or Ferdy Walsh people's character in the band mm-hmm. get no screen time whatsoever. Like the, the no. two kids that are playing the bass and the, the guitarist that joined who get a line saying, we yeah. should join this band, and that is their characterization for the rest of the film. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's lots of little, uh, other things that you kind of wish could be seen, but uh, I don't think it really uh, denigrates the rest of the film uh, that they're not no. mentioned. It's still just remarkably enjoyable, and it's uh, just a very, yeah. it's a really pleasant film to watch. It's one of the most, I say, most enjoyable films on, on that I've seen in a good long time. I heartily enjoyed it. Yay. Come on, Carney, let's explore the Sing Street cinematic universe. <laughs> And that takes us on to what exactly, Scott? We shall pass back over to Drew for a look at Hell or High Water, a film that I am actually looking mighty much forward to seeing, but as so far, Mm. have not. So, take it away, boy. English director David McKenzie brings Sicario's vibe Taylor Sheridan's latest tale to the big screen in Hell or High Water, a tale of two brothers robbing a series of banks in West Texas, but with better reason and more smarts than most. Their story and motivations as well as their characters, and those of the Texas Rangers tasked with bringing them to justice, are deftly drip-fed to us through gruff, terse dialogue, and just as often through what the characters don't say. Sheridan's screenplay is well-crafted, though there are caveats, of which, more later, leavened with dry humour, refreshingly free of exposition-heavy scenes, and all in a sea of moral ambiguity. My notable issues with the film include more than a few derogatory references to Mexicans and Native Americans, particularly from Bridges' Ranger Hamilton. And while I'm not clear if this is prejudice from the screenwriter or a reflection of the attitudes of genuine Texans, it serves little purpose in the film other than to make the ostensible hero of the piece seem kind of odious. It is well established that the bickering and trading of insults between two colleagues or acquaintances can be a shortcut for the nature of a relationship and the character of those in it, but here... That just makes it seem like Hamilton is a racist bully, and his partner Alberto a minority who is deeply uncomfortable but has no choice but to grin and bear it. What this element of Bridges' character does help to achieve, though, is to paint more of the characters in shades of grey, rather than the black and white good guys versus bad guys that the opening of the film seems to indicate, something that sets it apart from the sanctimony that besmirched No Country for Old Men, a film that Hell or High Water is sure to draw comparison to. As we learn more about what, and, crucially, why the brothers are doing what they are doing, they begin to accrue some sympathy. Otherwise, though, Bridges is a delight as the law enforcer charged with bringing the bank robbers to justice, 
drawling his way through the film like Rooster Cogburn minus the alcohol problem, and featuring one or two moments of genuine screen acting brilliance. The... I won't say revelation, as I was already well convinced that he was beyond merely competent, but for me the most noteworthy performance here is that of Chris Pine, looking most unkirk-like in weather-worn skin, greasy moustache and dusty clothes, who plays the quieter, smarter and more introspective of the Larsonist brethren. While ex-con big brother Tanner, Ben Foster, is an unrepentant recidivist who delights in the mayhem and violence of the criminal life, Pine's Toby is an altogether more pensive and calm figure, who has resorted to, or been forced into, criminality through desperation and a deep sense of injustice. Toby, in fact, brings to mind Ewan McGregor's role in Mackenzie's 2003 film Young Adam, Mackenzie, in fact, has previous form with brooding, troubled, introverted young men, having also directed 2007's Harlem Foe. And as well as being a considerably more engaging viewing experience than either of those two previous works, Pine's quietness allows Foster's slightly manic Tanner to stand apart, emphasising the difference in the brothers' personalities. While both the script and the acting are more than good enough to ensure that we never fail to believe that they are family. The setting is hard to pin down. Cars, clothes and technology could place it pretty much anywhere in the past 15 years. Though my guess is that it's a contemporary West Texas in economic decline. This matches with one of the film's main themes, that of the extinguishing and disintegration of the traditional rural Texas, and by extension the country. The banks are evil, they destroyed everything rhetoric seems a little heavy handed at times, but to be fair, it's hard to tell a parable of the effects of corporate greed and the disastrous impact of banks on small-town USA without at least mentioning it from time to time. Mackenzie has a firm hand at the tiller and ensures the slow burn of the story kindles evenly and with no abrupt changes of tone, even if one sequence involving the reckless behaviour of the older sibling threatens to become somewhat over the top and successfully creates what at first seems a straightforward crime flick but in reality is about change and loss. This is a thriller played out with the sensibilities and pacing of a western, a slow motion chase film, but for the most part it works. Beautifully shot by cinematographer Giles Nugent's Hell or High Water takes place in a Texas, in reality New Mexico, of baked golden landscapes of sand and dust as gritty, hard and unforgiving as the inhabitants. While it doesn't hit the heights of Sicario, as the early reviews out of Cannes may have suggested, this is a solid and entertaining diversion, and worth catching for Bridges, and when, Tron films aside, isn't this the case, and Pine, who continues his efforts to ensure he can never be thought of simply as that Star Trek guy. And we're back. Yes, as I say, it's something that I heartily look forward to seeing it to catch up with at some point in the near future. But we shall crash on to talk about our kind of traitor. Now, I don't know about you lot, he said, knowing exactly what the other person I'm talking to thinks about this, but I love me some John Le Carre adaptations. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His transition from the intrigues at the height of the Cold War to contemporary subjects such as big business and terrorism has provided the stories for some of my favourite films. I don't think I've seen a film adaptation of his that I didn't like, so I'm very much on board for this Russian mafia-based outing. 
University lecturer Professor Perry Makepeace, played by Ewan McGregor, is holidaying with his partner, the high-ranking barrister Gail Perkins, played by Naomi Harris, in the hopes of repairing their relationship after Perry slept with his student. Ooh, nasty. Uh, Oh, Perry. Perry, eh? (laughs) Sorry. A veritable parade of further sources of stress appear once Perry befriends gregarious Russian Dima, played by Stellan Skarsgård, who quickly shows off his photographic memory in the same way that Chekhov might show you his guns. <laughs> Quite why the one-time Enterprise navigator is showing off his biceps is a question for another day. The sun <laughs> is not even out. At any rate, Perry and Dima develop a report, and uh, Dima asks him to convey a memory stick of information back to London for the attention of MI6. It turns out that Dima... A memory stick? How how 2000s? It turns out that Dima is a high-ranking financial oligarch in the Russian mafia who's adept at seeing the writing on the wall. The new head of the mafia, the prince, is in the process of setting up a bank in the city of London to act as a one-stop money laundering facility, eliminating the need for the current system of thugs slash accountants that Dima is part of. And if the experience of the others is anything to go by, eliminating Dima himself after signing over control of the accounts that he manages. Dima's taking a desperate punt on being able to save his family, and hopefully himself also, by trading the information on those British politicians receiving the bribes needed to grease the wheels of the bank's creation for protection from his new boss. Perry agrees, unbeknownst to Gale, who's soon clued in once he's taken aside at his own request at Border Control for a lengthy chat with MI6 agent Hector, played by Damien Lewis. While Perry hoped that handing it over would be the end of it, soon Hector's asking Perry for help in gaining Dima's trust by being present at the meeting he set up in Paris. Hector is intrigued by the implication that their ex-boss, now MP Aubrey Longrig, played by Jeremy Northam, is heavily involved, and this is someone who Hector has long suspected of corruption but been unable to prove it, whom he also blames for having his son jailed on trumped-up drugs charges, having learned of this suspicion. And, well, so it goes, without wanting to get too deep into details that would only really be spoiling it for you, but suffice to say that Perry gets far more deeply involved than he anticipated, and Hector comes under great pressure to drop this investigation from his higher-ups, leading him to essentially run it as a borderline rogue operation with far less backup than you'd like when extracting someone from a group so powerful and violent as the Bratva. Like a most wanted man before it, this is a very solid story told in an uncomplicated, non-flashy way that I suspect some people may find a little too sedate, given the subject matter, but this happens to be directly up my alley. It Mm -hmm. doesn't have the period trappings of the likes of Tinker Tailor Soldier's Fry to provide any kind of hook, which is also perhaps peak Lacar in terms of story, but I don't think that's any barrier to enjoyment of a really well-told narrative in this instance. Where it falls short in comparison to that uh, is perhaps the performances, which I must stress is not to say that they're bad. McGregor and Skarsgård show great chemistry, and Skarsgård is in particular, gives a hugely enjoyable turn that is boisterous, almost but not quite to the point of parody, making the British people stereotypically reserved in comparison. But in particular, it's Lewis, who is admittedly an actor I've never been all that fond of, I've not forgiven him for 2003's Dreamcatcher, is rather underwhelming in the George Smiley analogue role. Not bad, exactly, but it feels rather like himself and, to a lesser degree, McGregor weren't given much flavour to insert into the roles, making them a little bit bland, certainly when you compare them to Skarsgård. For all that, it's not all that important. I do go to Lacar's work for the story, and that's delivered well enough here. It's perhaps a minor Lacar work, but Lacar on an off day is still more enjoyable for me than most other films, so it's definitely getting a recommendation from me. If you're the sort of person who appreciates the slower burn of Spycraft, as so elegantly described by us in our criminally underappreciated February 2016 episode, going with the download statistics, then this <laughs> is a solid, if 
unspectacular choice. I would certainly advise everyone to go see it. Yes, and I would advise everyone to go back and listen to that damn podcast. Yabams. No, I shall, as you say, I should definitely be checking out our kind of traitor because I think we are very much in alignment on uh, with our thoughts on Lacari and adaptations of his work to date so far. So, yeah. yeah I mean, certainly if you liked last year's A uh, Most Wanted Man, not last year, sorry, if you liked yeah. uh, Most Wanted Man from a couple of years back, then this is uh, of a similar kind of level of quality um, mm. and sort of pacing and structure, I guess, which for me is a very high recommendation. I very much enjoyed that mm. film. And if you did too, mm-hmm. you will like this one too. Yeah. Not for the want of trying, was I? not able to watch this in time for the podcast this week but it is a right up the tap of my uh, watch list so if I had anything to add to that I would throw it into our next discussion just as an aside but I don't suspect I will. Fair dues then I guess that's your lot for now uh, I would like to take a moment to thank all of you who have spoken to on Twitter Facebook, Reddit and Google Plus lately a special thanks to anyone who left a review on iTunes the mysterious Aubergine 928 uh, also uh, Ruby Todd who is one or both of Danaya Apollicus or Todd Schumann of the Maximize This podcast which is a very interesting little podcast which I heartily recommend and also Ben Jono who is again one or both of Ben Strivens and John Scott of the We Watch Anything podcast and uh, both of these podcasts I very heartily recommend props also as always to the Magic Lantern podcast whose episode on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre I shall be re-listening to in preparation for our next podcast which is on mm. 70s horror classics. Mm. Is that your chainsaw impersonation there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just leveraging this sore throat while I've got it. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. And uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, please hit us up. Twitter, uh, that's at FudsOnFilm. You can go to facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or podcast at FudsOnFilm.com on the email. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be very much appreciated. Um, until the 1st of October, again, as I said, mentioned we'll be talking about the likes of the exorcist the texas chainsaw massacre halloween all sorts of theoretically scary stuff and we'll see how well they've held up in the 40 years or so between then and there so yeah until that time take care of yourself each other i've been scott morris and i'm bidding you farewell and i'm sure craig eastman does too i don't need it bye, bye. <laughs>